Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Cognitive Dissident. I'm your host, Samuel Claiborne. I've long listened to On the Media, a podcast I deeply admired for many years. It's had its ups and downs, but I've been a loyal listener, even after co-host Bob Garfield was terminated for allegedly verbally bullying staff. I did also subscribe to Bob's new podcast, the in-your-face entitled Bully Pulpit, but kept listening to On the Media as well. As with so much of the media these days, though, I started noticing what I felt were sins of omission used to promote the OTM editorial viewpoint. This method of so-called journalism is particularly insidious because no lies are actively being told. Rather, facts, sources, and soundbites are being cherry-picked, some trumpeted, others omitted, in order to obscure, dilute, or outright suppress any viewpoints and questions that might weaken the preferred narrative. I saw this in their coverage of trans swimmer Leah Thomas. I saw it in their coverage of an outraged mother's viral video rant about a trans woman, complete with penis, mind you, hanging out naked in the same spa as this woman and her young daughter. And I've seen it in other coverage. The through line has, overwhelmingly, been their coverage of gender-based issues. There has been, to me, a clear suppression of anything but the most intolerant strain of feminism, trans rights, etc. A strain that seems to start with the assumption that men are always perpetrators, women and trans people always victims, and that anyone who opposes anyone who supports a woman or trans person in any way over any issue or incident is clearly a misogynist or transphobic. Ah, if only life were so simple, if only things were so cut and dried, we could all go to sleep at night, knowing who the evil ones are, safe and secure in our moral absolutism, not a shadow of doubt impinging upon our unwrinkled brows. But life isn't so simple, and on the media's descent into simplistic black versus white narratives, a style that used to be antithetical to their very nature, has finally gone farther than I can stomach. I hung in as long as I could, but a recent short from On the Media, hosted by Brandy Zadrozny, with guest interviewee E.J. Dixon, tore it for me. This short was about the media circus surrounding the Depp Heard trial. Before I go any farther, a few words about my opinions on this trial and anyone's guilt. Firstly, I really don't care about Johnny Depp or Amber Heard. I've enjoyed them both in movies at times, but I am not a celebrity follower. I've only followed this trial insofar as I haven't been able to avoid it. Also, when I first heard about Heard's allegations of domestic abuse several years ago, I reflexively took her side. I'd seen a video she shot of a drunk, angry, sullen, and surly Depp, and basically found him guilty as charged, despite the fact that this video was not nearly enough for me to base a real opinion upon. I rushed to judgment. My natural protectiveness of women kicked in, and I felt, sure, this guy could absolutely be a wife-beater. I never gave a second's thought to the idea that she might have goaded him before she pressed record on her phone, though God knows I have certainly had female partners gleefully goad me into anger at times. I was so thoroughly on her side that I lost three female friends who immediately jumped to his defense. Amber Heard is a cold, calculating, sociopathic succubus, they yelled at me. I yelled back that they were victim-shaming, and how the hell, as women, could they be taking the abuser's side? You don't understand, they insisted. She's lying. Okay, that's where it stood until this horrendously personally and mutually demeaning trial started up. 
From that time on, I've learned that Amber Heard, as evidenced by her own admission, hit Johnny Depp multiple times. There is good evidence that she threw bottles and other objects at him, and that one of these bottle attacks may have severed the tip of his finger, amputating the flesh all the way to the bone. But even if it did not, throwing a bottle at someone is incredibly aggressive and dangerous, and the gender of the person doing the throwing and of the intended target are immaterial. There is also a fair amount of evidence that calls her claims of physical abuse into question. For example, officers responding to a domestic violence call at their home, an incident wherein she claimed she was beaten and bruised, saw no evidence of bruising, reddening, or swelling in the areas she claims were hit, but only eyes apparently reddened from crying. In the days after that incident, no one seems to recall seeing any bruises at all, a circumstance Heard explains as the result of her adroit use of makeup, which is indeed a viable possibility. On the other side, there is also less persuasive but exculpatory evidence in that virtually all of Depp's former partners have described him as the most gentle and least violent of men. However, circumstances change, and there's no doubt that Depp seems to have been doing a lot of drinking and coke snorting in the midst of a highly combustible relationship, and that makes his prior actions, as reported by prior lovers, less germane to me. Honestly, the trial has created the impression of two people with substance abuse, entitlement, anger management, and impulse control issues. They both appear to me to be unlikable, less than completely honest, and to have committed violence. That said, Heard has been caught in far more, shall we say, blatantly dishonest lies. Not only is there compelling footage of her assignations with other men while married to Depp, not only did she accuse Depp of dangling their Yorkie out of a car window only for video evidence of her doing this to appear, but most damningly, Heard had publicly promised at the time of her divorce to donate all $7 million of her settlement to two charities, and she never did. This brings to mind Donald Trump's donation that never was of $1 million to a veterans group. On the stand, Heard continually insisted that pledging this money was the same as actually donating it. A stunningly, absurdly, laughably remarkable statement. She refused to admit that she lied under oath about this donation that never occurred. But what was most damning for me was her insistence that she would have donated the money but for Depp's suit for defamation, which had made it financially impossible. What was so damning about this? She, quote, pledged, unquote, this money right after the divorce. Johnny Depp didn't sue her for defamation for 13 months. The two issues are unrelated. This was a complete and total fabrication. Like Trump, Heard appears to be yet one more entitled celebrity who will say anything, yet do nothing, to fake their own altruism in order to gain currency in the court of public opinion. As well as these blatant lies, Heard has given me the impression of being more staged, more in the act of acting than Depp on the stand. But that's neither here nor there. It's only my opinion. I only note it because I came into this trial on Heard's side. I assumed the man had been the abuser and the only abuser, and that the woman had been the victim and the only victim. And that impression has been changed for me by the facts given in testimony and by the affect of the two actors on the stand. Okay, now that we've gotten that out of the way, here's what On the Media basically did in their episode entitled How the Depp v. Heard Trial Became a Meme. 
The episode begins with a description of the circus nature of the trial, underscoring the fervent zealotry of the pro-dep camp. It covers the antecedents to the trial by basically saying that Heard put out an op-ed wherein she identified herself as a survivor of domestic violence and a victim of societal backlash, and Depp then sued her. Although she didn't name names, Heard was clearly accusing Depp, and the op-ed landed like a bombshell on his career, causing immediate damage to it, despite the concept of innocent until proven guilty. Whether justified or not, and I now prefer to not jump to conclusions, Heard essentially grievously mauled Depp and torpedoed his career with thinly veiled accusations. She may also have violated a non-disparagement clause that she and Depp signed when they got divorced. None of this was mentioned by OTM as they described what led up to the trial. They did, however, take pains to mention that Depp lost a defamation suit against an English newspaper that had accused him of being an abuser. Brava. The heroine and villain are now perfectly delineated for even the stupidest of us. In light of clear evidence we now possess, including Heard's own recorded admissions that she physically attacked Depp on more than one occasion, you might have thought that at this point OTM might have tempered the poor woman as victim story a wee bit with these oh-so-ever-slightly-salient facts. Depp was also clearly a victim of domestic violence, but this was never mentioned. Rather, Zadrozny forged on ahead into the nuance-free zone, Rather than providing this important context, she chose to focus solely on that zealous pro-dep camp, and predictably, of course, on its most misogynistic splinters, larding on the one-sided woman-as-victim narrative. Facts be damned. At this point, the episode brings in E.J. Dixon, who laments the breezy memification of these, quote, extreme and horrifying allegations, end quote, by these hordes of pro-dep misogynists. Never once does she suggest that some of the most horrifying allegations, such as the punching of Depp, throwing dangerous objects at him, and the possible severing of the tip of his middle finger, yes, it had to be that finger, symbol of all that is phallic and aggressive, oh god of irony, how I love you, placed Johnny Depp in the position of domestic violence victim and Amber Heard as the perpetrator at least part of the time. No, these salient facts were carefully omitted. It seems clear to me that Heard and Depp were involved in a co-created domestic violence spiral, each feeding off of the adrenaline and other neurochemicals that this behavior releases. Children of trauma have proven many times to be addicted to this cycle of trauma and drama, as it allows their numbed and disassociated personalities to feel alive in the heat of the moment. But whether you agree with my pocket psychiatric analysis or not, what is clear, even from Heard's own recorded testimony, is that she was physically violent towards Johnny Depp on multiple occasions. This is without question a factual statement, but OTM completely omits this crucial, deeply contextual information. Was it really too hard to at least mention that Amber Heard physically assaulted Johnny Depp on several occasions, OTM? Is this really too fucking much to ask? Really? Jesus, the bar has dropped this low? This is what you call journalism? And from there, things only got worse. 
First, there was more on the memes and how they supposedly glorify or minimize or support domestic violence because people were making videos that humorously, to the maker's minds anyway, showed an incident as related by Heard wherein she claimed she was slapped by Depp. To the video makers, at least, Heard's testimony appeared to be contradictory and so lacked credibility. And many made videos mocking and parodying this seeming inconsistency. It's quite a leap to say that videos mocking one woman's testimony are indication of a ubiquitous problem of domestic violence being laughed at or minimized, but again, Ms. Dixon is able to leap tall buildings composed of sophistries and fallacies in a single bound. How ironic that while Zadrozny and Dixon opine about misogynist hordes, many of them women, minimizing domestic violence, they themselves are actively suppressing the fact that Heard was a domestic abuser. It's mind-boggling. Another tiny irony to note is that if one looks at modern television, especially sitcoms, for the last 20 years, the only domestic violence you'll find being treated lightheartedly is that perpetuated against men. But never you mind about that, let's keep to the preferred narrative at all costs. As to these stupid TikTok videos, they seem to me to be predicated upon a misapprehension of Ms. Hurd's testimony. I, for one, do not find what she said to be contradictory in the least. In fact, I think these video makers are clearly guilty of a total inability or perhaps disinclination to perceive the possibilities of nuance in her statement. But you judge for yourself. When I was walking out of the bedroom, slapped me across the face, I turned to look at him. And I said, Johnny, you hit me. The idea behind these genius TikTokers mocking her testimony is that Heard needn't have turned to face Depp if he'd indeed just slapped her across the face. I.e., he must have been in front of her to have slapped her. I see no reason why he couldn't have slapped her from the side, and she could then have turned to face him. This seems perfectly believable to me, and so I will take Dixon's side on this, to a point. That point being that these videos are stupid, though I hardly see them as some insidious indication of murderous misogyny hiding under every rock you turn over. I will grant that Amber Heard has gotten the lion's share of the negative memes, and I will grant that misogyny is real, and terrible, and sick, and often leads to violence. Would that most women grant that misandry is all of these things too. But hell, Microsoft Word's dictionary still thinks misandry is a misspelling. Maybe you don't know this word as well, since the culture seems to want to pretend it doesn't exist. Misandry is the gender-reversed counterpart of misogyny, a hatred of men, most often seen in their disparagement and denigration, and the minimization or mocking of their suffering. It is real and it is ubiquitous. One need only look at the novelty mugs being sold with the slogan, male tears emblazoned upon them, to see that male suffering is indeed mocked. Many women who decry misogyny are manifestly guilty of harboring misandry, and E.J. Dixon appears to me to be one of them. But back to those mocking videos. Is all of this negative memification simply the result of misogyny? Is that the only plausible answer? Well, besides the fact that many women support Johnny Depp, which weakens that argument somewhat, though I have no doubt feminists have started, or will start, calling such people self-hating women, the way I'm called a self-hating Jew because I support the boycott, divest, sanction movement, in truth, there may be many other reasons for this memification than misogyny. 
Perhaps some of this antipathy towards Hurd is not blanket hatred of women. Perhaps it's dislike of her and her actions. For example, some of it stems from the fact that she's posturing as a weeping, helpless, mewling victim when she clearly, at very least, appears at times to have been a rage-filled, highly aggressive perpetrator. Is some of it perhaps that people think Johnny Depp got shafted when he lost his case in the UK, a case engendered by Heard's actions? Is it perhaps that they've seen his career destroyed by her? Perhaps justifiably, perhaps not but certainly without due process and in violation of the spirit of, if not the letter of, a non-disparagement clause she signed in order to get her $7 million? Is it because she appears overly scripted and many aspects of her behavior, some caught on tape, appear to display a volatile, cruel, and vindictive character? No, the only possible answer is rampant misogyny, rape culture, etc., if you've only got one lens, everything tends to look the same through it. These videos become the anvil upon which Dixon pounds her position, that of Heard as helpless victim and Depp as the inspiration for countless seething hordes of febrile fascist incels. That she projects this as the main point of this whole trial and its memification is disappointing in the extreme. It's a laser focus on one aspect to the quite deliberate exclusion of a larger, much more important story, that of the ambiguities of domestic violence, where both people are often victim and perpetrator, as studies have shown, and that violence towards men is utterly discounted in our society. Does anyone think Will Smith would have gotten a standing ovation if he'd made a speech right after striding up on stage and slapping a woman? Moreover, the episode then veers, rather vertiginously, one might say, into a kind of histrionic name-calling. The irony is that while Dixon is decrying how social media has sensationalized this trial, how this sensationalism can be harmful and inaccurate, she then indulges in a series of sensational, inaccurate, and harmful generalizations and characterizations of her own. Oh yes, god of irony or goddess, if you prefer, you are really working overtime these days. Dixon hypothesizes that all of this pro-Dep anti-herd memification is a simmering backlash to the Me Too movement. Well, again, she may be right, but she's yet again somehow missing the deeper point about this. I mean, herd assaulted Dep on numerous occasions. Isn't this germane? Could this possibly be a justified backlash against reflexively believing the woman and against the knee-jerk the woman is always the victim narrative that Me Too seems to personify? Could this be the arc of justice correcting its flight, the pendulum losing some of its hysterical velocity and returning closer to a stable, reality-based center? All through Me Too, every time I've heard the slogan, Believe the Woman, I've gotten pissed. First of all, women are humans, are they not? Does anyone truly believe that women can't be duplicitous, vindictive, triggered, neurotic, or prone to assuming a victim's stance? All humans are capable of these things. As an example, the number of times I've had a woman in my life attack me verbally only to instantly become the victim the minute I lost my temper and verbally gave as good as I got are numerous. I suspect that almost every man has experienced this verbal jujitsu that women can perpetrate, wherein they verbally attack, sometimes saying the most cruel, emasculating, sarcastic, cutting, and denigrating things, only to instantly use the male verbal counterattack as justification for a weeping collapse into victimhood, wailing all the while that the man is 
being abusive. Abuse only seems to flow in one direction in their view. They take no responsibility and admit no culpability. Rules for thee, but not for me, seems to be the rule in these situations and in this episode of On the Media. Secondly, people, even, oh my God, the people we call women, can lie. More to the point, people are susceptible to groupthink, which is why women who were in completely consensual relationships years ago, suddenly in the midst of Me Too, reappraise them as coercive, in some cases causing the destruction of the careers of their ex-partners in the process. We are living in a society that rewards victimhood to an unprecedented extent. Moreover, it's just plain natural for humans to want to belong, and belonging to Me Too is no different. I am quite literally the last person on earth to ever sexually coerce a woman. I was so programmed as an adolescent into male shame and passivity that I have been reluctant to make the first move, as it's called, my whole life. It's kind of a wonder I ever had girlfriends, got married, and had kids, given how passive to the point of helplessness I was for most of my life when it came to courting and dating. More than one woman has had to pretty much literally throw me into bed to initiate intimacy due to the strictures I'd self-generated out of the shame I'd internalized. And yet, some 15 years after the fact, at the height of Me Too, a friend of mine recharacterized a completely consensual kiss we'd shared as a Me Too moment. That was when I realized the power of groupthink and its implicit peer pressure, not only to conform to a viewpoint, but to actively incentivize the internalization of the strong, self-affirming aspects of that viewpoint, which in the case of Me Too is a virtuous, guilt-free, responsibility-free martyrdom. Thirdly, lest we forget, and this is again where the juicy peach of intersectionality and its massive bitter pit of contradictions and ironies ripens to full fruition, many of the thousands of black men who were beaten, tortured, and horrendously murdered through lynching suffered their fates because of the accusations of white women, and many of these accusations were later recanted. Believe the Woman artfully completely elides this history of white female-induced murder of large numbers of black men. It's like it never happened, folks. Just believe that woman at all costs. How any black woman in America can utter, let alone subscribe to, believe the woman, or really how any American of intelligence and conscience who has a knowledge of American history can, is beyond me. And really... Even if you'd never heard of lynching, Believe the Woman is just a stunningly ignorant and absurdly insultingly simplistic slogan. It puts women on a pedestal. It paints them in a two-dimensional rose-colored light. And I find this also almost intolerably ironic because, yes, it objectifies them. I guess it's okay to objectify women if you're objectifying them as saints. But women are all too human, replete with the full panoply of human foibles. They can lie to themselves and to others. They can be duplicitous. They can be violent. They can justify to themselves the most unjustifiable actions. Hell, they can even be evil. Welcome to the human race, female homo sapiens. Lest anyone think I am asserting that violence and rape and coercion do not exist, or that the majority of it is not directed by men towards women, I would hope that a careful listening to how I first reacted to the Herd Depp story would dissuade you of such an impression. 
I am well aware that at least one out of four women suffer sexual assault or abuse or domestic violence in their lifetimes. You, however, may be unaware that at least one out of six men suffer a similar fate. You may also be unaware that Erin Pizzi, the woman who opened the very first shelter for battered women in history over 50 years ago, now campaigns for men's rights because she soon came to see that women often were the initiators of or co-conspirators in cycles of violent behavior. And she also saw a pattern of women instantly reverting to victimhood once their partners met violence with violence. Don't get me wrong, Pizzi saw and documented horrific acts of violence perpetrated against women by men. Women absolutely covered in bruises and cigarette burns. To this day, if I look at these pictures, I am consumed with rage against these men and compassion for and a desire to help these women. But Pizzi also knew from her own childhood and from what she saw in the interplays of partners in her shelters that, as she put it, quote, domestic violence is not a gender issue, end quote. This is an extraordinary statement. To say that it goes against accepted orthodoxy would be an understatement of nearly unparalleled proportions. But there is Pizzi, resolute in that assertion, and the further assertion that a significant proportion of domestic violence is intergenerational on both sides, that women are equally capable and culpable in perpetrating it, and that often, as I previously stated, both partners are addicted to the adrenaline high engendered by the episodes of rage and violence. She also strenuously rejects the postmodern conflation of verbal and emotional abuse as, quote, the same, end quote, as physical violence. Now quite aged, she still insists that equating emotional abuse with violence, quote, insults every battered wife, end quote. Yet another position I find axiomatic in its just and clear-eyed vision. And yet this has also led to her demonization by feminists. She is now absolutely pilloried by most of the feminist movement, which insists that the black-white victim-abuser narrative is the one truth, the orthodoxy, and that anyone who dissents, even a person with her amazing place in the history of protecting women from male abusers, must be cast out into the wilderness, her name cursed for all eternity. Her original shelter, now the largest in the UK, has scrubbed her entirely from their website, and she founded the damn place virtually single-handedly. Pizzi is still a fervent believer in helping families recover from violence, but she refuses to differentiate accountability based on gender. Oh, if only Ms. Zdrozny and Ms. Dixon could be so even-handed. I have no history of physical violence in my family. In fact, I was raised a pacifist, and indeed, I'd never been exposed to domestic violence, as perpetrator or victim, at all, through two marriages and several girlfriends. But one day, an inebriated partner, a partner, interestingly, who did have a history of violence, as she was often beaten savagely as a child by her mother, started punching me. I pushed her back. She fell down. She jumped up and charged me, punching me viciously. I pushed her back again, and she fell down again. Once again, she jumped up, but this time she picked up a wine bottle by the neck and raised it over her head menacingly. At that point, something in me just gave up, or perhaps my pacifist upbringing just took over. I dropped my hands. 
Go ahead, I said. Hit me. Luckily for both of us, she did not. What she did do, though, was refuse to leave my house, even after I repeatedly asked her to do so. So I threatened to call the police. That was when she got the bright idea of calling the police herself and accusing me of assaulting her. So soon, the police were interviewing me, and I was calm, shocked, and sad, and interviewing her, and she was venomous, volcanic, and livid, vibrating with a rage that was barely held in check. I'd had the presence of mind to call her therapist, who rushed over to speak with the police. She explained to them that I had no history of violence, but that my partner did have a history of rage and impulse control issues. The therapist's assertions and the states of mind evidenced by my then partner and myself are all that kept me out of jail that night. This was my first and hopefully last experience of domestic violence, and of the perpetrator adroitly using her gender to instantly assume the protective coloration of supposed victim in order to turn the tables and attempt to escape all responsibility for her own actions, and to enact even more damage upon the object of her rage. In that case, that damage being, at the very least, imprisonment, possibly for an extended period, and perhaps financial cost and social stigmatization as well. Truth be told, I was shattered by this experience. She was my partner, someone I loved. The sense of betrayal and heartbreak was beyond any I'd experienced before in my adult life, and that includes many deaths and two divorces. I was in shock for weeks. I was crushed. I was turned inside out. We went our separate ways, and eventually she apologized to me and took ownership for her actions. But I saw how tricky this stuff is, and how things are not always as they seem, and I understood for the first time the latent power women actually have in this area. For years, they've had the power to get a man thrown in jail, or in the recent past, in the case of white women and black men, have a man tortured and murdered, basically on their say-so. Don't believe me? Look into law and police procedure in places like New York City. If police arrive at a domestic violence call and the woman accuses the man, the police are compelled to take him to jail. No other response is permitted. He is incarcerated merely upon her say-so, even if he's cut, bruised, and bleeding, even if he swears she started it. This is another area where superficial and incomplete concepts of power dynamics conveniently omit salient facts. It is a fact that women are beaten and murdered far more by their male partners than the other way around. But that fact in no way means we should believe the woman, because women also violently attack and murder their partners, and often initiate cycles of intra-couple violence. I've now experienced it in person, directed at my person. When faced with a woman, in this case a tall, strong, rage-filled woman, attacking me, my first response was to defend myself. It mattered not a bit to her that I was stronger than her in her enraged state, and it mattered little to me, especially when she picked up a potentially deadly weapon and menaced me with it. I did nothing wrong, but were it not for that therapist's presence, I undoubtedly would have spent the night in jail. So yes, women have a form of power here, and, as in my case, sometimes that power is abused, as all forms of power inevitably sometimes are. Believe the woman? Not any more than I believe the man. Thank you very much. People are people. But Ms. Dixon has no such problem. She quickly manages to label anyone who claims a woman is a misandrist as a far-right extremist. Let's turn that on its head. 
is a woman who labels a man who is clearly voicing anti-female sentiments as a misogynist, some sort of extremist, or is she simply stating a fact? He's a misogynist. The women who minimize, elide, and ignore the physical assaults perpetrated against Johnny Depp by Amber Heard are, by their commissions and omissions, seeming to say that women are never guilty and that violence against men is acceptable. Again, I point to Will Smith's standing ovation at the Oscars as Exhibit A. This sure as shit seems like misandry to me. It doesn't strike me that you have to be some virgin, dweeby, far-right incel to call this spade a spade, but rather merely a thinking person. But of course, there will be women who assert that women can't possibly be misandrists because women can't be sexist because of the dreaded power imbalance. This pathetic excuse is also used to claim that black people can't be racist. I will merely note the absolute wave of black-on-Asian hate crimes from vicious beatings to murders occurring in America today as an excellent rebuttal. If you harbor ill will towards someone because of their gender, if you judge them more harshly, if you judge your own gender more leniently, you're a goddamn sexist. And if you view someone else of another color as beneath you, or harbor ill will towards them, or excoriate a crime they commit while minimizing or ignoring or justifying a similar crime committed by someone of your color, you're a fucking racist. End of story. Dixon then leverages this first conflation that anyone who objects to the idea that it's all Johnny's fault and that Amber Heard couldn't possibly be even partially responsible and culpable is misogynistic and practically an incel into an even more facile but suitably ominous one. That there's now a scary confluence of Johnny Depp fans and far-right misogynist incel freaks. She throws in, for good measure, the term, quote, far-right rape denialists, end quote. An impressively propagandistic rhetorical flourish on her part. Just throw it all against that wall and see what sticks, Ms. Dixon. She then goes on to cite more misinformation used against Ms. Hurd, while again cheerfully ignoring all of the misinformation and slander weaponized against Mr. Depp and his career by Ms. Hurd and her defense team. What's good for the goose is quite evidently not good for the gander. Dixon states that the light-hearted treatment and minimization of domestic violence, as evidenced in these TikTok slap parodies of Hurd's testimony, hurts its victims. Another unintentional irony, as she fails to even once mention the ever-so-slightly more important than TikTok videos facts of Depp's documented bruises and severed fingertip. No, she is not treating the domestic violence perpetrated by Ms. Hurd against Mr. Depp lightheartedly at all. Rather, she and Ms. Zadrozny are not talking about it at all. They are utterly silent about this violence. It's as if it never happened. So what really is worse? Supposedly making fun of domestic violence in one instance, or absolutely and completely suppressing all mention of it having occurred in another? Jesus Christ on a crutch, I couldn't write a more unintentionally ironic parody of On the Media if I tried. That the host, Ms. Zadrozny, and On the Media's editorial board would allow perhaps their most slanted, one-sided, unintentionally ironic and hypocrisy-ridden episode to date to air is evidence that the people running the show have really swallowed the woke PC thing to the point that they are consciously or unconsciously actively producing propaganda. 
pushing their preferred narrative through multiple sins of omission, as well as the free use of irresponsibly sensationalist and scary hyperbole, all the while opining about the harms of, you got it, irresponsibly sensationalist hyperbole. On the media has jumped the shark. I gave them the benefit of doubt for some time, but this was a bridge too far. I have reluctantly deleted it from my podcast app. I have no desire to be propagandized from any facet of the left or right. I have no desire to ingest a stilted, slanted narrative that allows for no nuance, no gray areas, and no dissent, and is scrupulously curated to project a flat, staged simulation of reality rather than the messy, complex truth. This neat, tidy, fundamentally dishonest pre-digestion and pre-packaging is an insult to intelligence and to intellectual inquiry. The intolerant, cultish fealty to a given narrative, the willingness to actively manipulate and suppress information in the service of promoting that narrative, is both tragic and abhorrent for our democracy and our intellectual health as a society. And I see it metastasizing on both the left and the right, among liberals and conservatives. Truth is no longer the goal. Conversion is. Inculcation is. Either the journalists at On The Media are lying to themselves, grievously, or they are intentionally lying to us. Neither option is attractive or acceptable. As a result, they are no longer on the side of truth. They have become propagandists. It is with a very heavy heart that I bid Brooke Gladstone and her crew a fond, sad farewell. Thank you very much once again for listening, and please be good to your neighbor. The music for today's show was once again pulled from my release of sung and spoken word, personal and political rock and roll and experimental music entitled Love, Lust, and Genocide, available for streaming all over the place and also for purchase on places like Amazon and CD Baby. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media.